It's good to see you guys. Um, I've mentioned before, but uh, God's always done some really incredible things in my life when I've had the opportunity to um, go on missions in other countries and cultures. And uh, one of the things that has always uh, just really stirred me is, is being in places where um, uh, people can call on the same God um, and not in a language I understand, but the spirit inside of me knows because um, we're, we all follow Jesus. Uh, so thank you, Daniel and Victoria, for just sharing uh, that aspect with us um, this morning. It, it is a good reminder that God is so much bigger than uh, just Arlington, than just the U.S., to even just this time. He is way beyond that. Um, uh, so it's my um, privilege this morning uh, to share the Word of God with you, and we're going to just be uh, continuing on in, in, in the same vein that we've been discussing for a while. And uh, we have chosen uh, this year as a church, we don't always do it, but we've been observing Lent as a church. It's this period of preparation um, as we head towards uh, commemorating Easter. And so as a part of that, we um, have just been looking at the different parts in the scriptures uh, where this number 40 keeps coming up. And so you, you see it all throughout uh, the Old Testament different times, and it's usually associated with this, this time of testing or trial, and God uses that period of time to do uh, something incredible. And so uh, some of the stories we've looked at pr uh, prior to today, if you want to go back online, you can look at those sermons, but we started out uh, in the book of Jonah when Jonah was called to go to Nineveh and preach for 40 days. And then we looked at uh, the story of Noah and how uh, rain fell on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and God preserved Noah and his family in the ark. And then uh, last week we looked at uh, the Exodus, um, where uh, God's people wandered in the wilderness uh, for 40 years. And so we're going to continue on with that, and uh, this morning we're actually going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 4. So if you have uh, a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to turn to there. If not, it'll be up on the screen, but it's a, a, a passage that that we typically call, and it probably has a heading right there somewhere in your Bible, uh, the temptation of Jesus. And so uh, these next couple of weeks uh, leading up to Easter are going to be pretty focused on Jesus. And so I'm just excited to dig into God's word with you. And so uh, let's go ahead and we'll, we'll read that passage and then we'll discuss what God has for us uh, this morning. I would say just preemptively as I've been uh, digging into uh, this scripture this week, um, there's a lot of depth to the word of God. And I kept feeling kind of stuck as to which aspect I wanted to focus on. And if you're familiar with the passage, you, you might understand that I was kind of stuck like, is, is this going to be a spiritual warfare sermon, or is this just going to be about how Jesus is awesome? And so I settled on both. Uh, so you get two sermons this morning. But Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says this. It said, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Uh, this is really a, a fascinating story, and there is a whole lot of, of, of different things going on, and I, I think we could probably spend hours kind of unpacking all the different intricacies of what's taken place in the story, but I do want to um, kind of uh, take this in two parts, and, and on one side of it, I do want to look at it in, in regards to us. Personally, I, like, I love application. I want to know, like, hey, how can I take this? How can I put it into my life? How can it help me follow Jesus? And so I, I do want to talk about this aspect in regards to the ways that we face temptation and what we should be on guard for in our own lives and what we uh, can identify as being helpful for us. Uh, but then after we kind of talk about us a little bit, I just, I just want to end looking at how awesome Jesus is in this story and some incredible things that are happening in the Word of God. And so one of the first things I think I, sh uh, I should point out just for us in regards to this idea, you know, we are looking at 40, we're looking at these numbers of testing, these numbers uh, associated with trial. And one of the first things you notice right there in verse 1, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so one of the things I want you to uh, key in on this morning is that uh, in regards to us facing testing and trials, we should always remember like God is sovereign over what trials we are going to face. So right here we see it, Jesus led by the Spirit. So this is an act of God moving him into this place of desolation. But I want to draw some distinction for us um, because it says um, the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness. Uh, but then it says, um, how does it phrase it right there? It says to be tempted by the devil. So after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter came. So let's draw a distinction real quick uh, between a trial and temptation. Because I do think they're different. And I think that's important. Because one of the things um, the Word of God says for us in James chapter 1, um, James makes it very clear that nobody is tempted by God. And so I think that's a helpful distinction for us, that I do think our trials, what God leads us into and allows us to go through in life, are ordained and ordered by God. But a trial is meant to reveal truth and to bring about growth in our life. Temptation is from the evil one to entice us to do things against the will of God. And so those are two different actions, and both are taking place in this story. A trial or is it ordained by God, maybe a circumstance of life that provides difficulty and it's going to uh, produce character in us. In fact, James also says in chapter 1 that we should consider it joy when we face various trials. But that's different than what Satan's doing in regards to Jesus. And so what Satan's doing, and as we've read, he is trying to entice Jesus to do evil. He is trying to entice Jesus to go against the will of the Father. And so there is a difference between facing a trial and facing temptation. The other thing I want to uh, just bring up is, I feel like a lot of times when we, we read these stories in the Bible, our 21st century minds just have a disconnect for anything that is truly spiritual. And I know it's always a mixed bag um, in, in a room this size when we talk about, you know, the term typically used is spiritual warfare. When the Bible discusses things like demons, when the Bible talks about Satan, when it talks about, you know, being tempted or being led astray or somebody being, um, having demons within them, you know, I, I think a lot of times we just rationalize that away. So I don't, I don't even know where you're coming from this morning if people think that is actually a, a reality or not for you today. 
And so my encouragement to you in what I see from the scriptures, and I think if we have an honest reading of the word of God, we need to be aware that there is a battle going on around us every single day of our lives that we do not see. And I know a lot of us are keyed in on we love things that we can see and touch and figure out and manage But there is a supernatural world that goes on around us, both um, in in the good sense that we have a heavenly father that is at work around us in ways that we cannot see, and he has servants, what we call angels, that are at work around us that we cannot see. But there is an other side of that, that there is a a work at, um, at, at work in our world that is evil and is not from God. And um, uh, there, are, uh, there is a Satan and there are demons that are also uh, trying to lead us astray from the work of God and to dismantle his work in our lives. And one of the things we should be very keenly aware of is that Satan has no problem with you not thinking he exists. And one of, I would say, the primary strategies of us uh, not... Um, of us falling into temptation, of us being led down a path that God does not want us to go, is to not be aware aware that there is a war going on for our hearts and minds every single day. There is not a day that there's not a battle for you. And I think this is a powerful reminder of this. Uh, Spiritual attack is happening in our lives if we are aware of it or not. And I think part of the problem for us is that uh, we tend to think in terms of horror movies. And I would not say, by and large, that that's the best frame of reference um, uh, for a spiritual view of the world. And so it, it's um, a little more screw tape letters and a little less exorcist. And so I want to just point at one point of scripture that should um, help kind of frame how this actually works itself out in our lives. If so, if you would also go to uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, I think it gives a really good description at what this actually looks like every day in our lives. Let me get, get there myself. So 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so uh, I think there's a really great description of how a whole lot of spiritual warfare takes place. And it's not, um, it's, it, it's not some crazy manifestation uh, that we might have seen in The Conjuring. You know, it's not anybody running up the walls or uh, vomiting on you. It, it has a couple of words. It has uh, thoughts. It has opinions. It has ideas. Anything that raises itself up against the knowledge of Christ is not from God, but is from the enemy. And so what I think it actually looks like a lot, even in the story we just read, um, it, it, doesn't ver- it doesn't seem to me how, how the text reads. It doesn't seem very demonstrative. You know, it says Jesus is by himself. The tempter comes and just starts ladling accusations against God. 
And I think that's how it's going to work itself out in our own life. A lot of times, it's, it's not going to be some crazy vision we see. It's not going to be late at night. It's not going to, you're not going to hear some crazy voice. It's probably just our own thoughts. It's going to appear as our own thoughts. It's going to be opinions. It's going to be ideas. Anything that presents itself as a good idea to follow instead of what God has told you, that is the work of Satan, and that is how spiritual warfare is going to occur in your life on a daily basis. I would say for myself, more often than not, like, it, it's going to appear as your own thoughts. Um, but I, I know for me, when I have kind of keyed in on the fact that different times, like, okay, I don't think that's coming from me anymore. I think that's something outside that's trying to lead me away from God. And that's what that temptation is. It's trying to entice you to not follow God and to step into something else. And so uh, I, I, would, I would venture a guess that most of the spiritual warfare where there was literally a demon tempting you away from God, you never realized it because you thought it was your own head. That would just be my opinion from how I, I take all the scriptures and how spiritual warfare works. I would say that is the most likely scenario. So I want us to remember those two things. One is that trials are ordained by God, and two, there's a spiritual war going on around you all the time. And those Two things typically work in conjunction, but I think it gives us hope to remember that um, God is still over that. And so our trials, these different difficulties in life that we face, those are ordered and ordained by God. I love one of my favorite uh, missionary stories is about Adoniram Judson back in 1812 was one of the first missionaries sent from the U.S. And he went to Burma and uh, just did this incredible work, uh, translated the Bible into Burmese, was one of the, uh, the first Western missionaries to go to that part of the world. Incredible story. And over the course of his, uh, you know, 40 years he spent in Burma doing this work, uh, he, had, he had an incredible amount of hardship. Um, so his first wife uh, passed away. At one point, he was locked in prison. Um, he had several children that died just because the, the environment was so difficult. He, he married again another lady that was a missionary and was a widow, and then he outlived her. She ended up passing away. They had some other children that died. Just in a, a, a crazy up-and-down story if you read his biography. And uh, near the end of his life, he said this. He said, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. And so let's remember that, that these trials we go through are um, given to us by God to bring about a result of closeness and trust with him. I want to keep talking about this spiritual aspect for us. Um, in Ephesians 6, uh, a passage of, a lot of you have probably read, it talks about putting on the full armor of God. And I don't want to get into all of that, but one of the things it says right there at the beginning, it says, so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. And so I, I like that word schemes because it puts a good context for me in this, that like um, in regards to spiritual warfare and in regards to how the enemy wants to tempt you to uh, stray from the Lord, like there is literally like a strategy that is put in place. Like there is thought that goes into us being tempted away from God. And I see some components of that in this story with Jesus. And so I want to phrase it in two ways that I think are a common strategy that we uh, are going to face as well. One I would call the pylon. Um, and then the other, I'd say the identity attack. So oh, what I mean by the pile on, if you read the beginning of the passage again, it says uh, Jesus was led into the wilderness and where he fasted for 40 days, 40 nights, part of the trial from God, 
But after those 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and then it says what? It says, and then the tempter came. And so one of the things that happens is we, we don't want to over-spiritualize that every single difficulty uh, we face in this life is demonic. You know, uh, he didn't give you that flat tire. Um, those different things, you know, somebody being rude to you every single day wasn't a demon tempting you. You know, but there is this aspect as we go through life and face difficulty, if there is a scheme and strategy in place by the enemy to lead you away from God, I think he's going to take advantage of the surrounding situation. And so uh, Jesus has been led into the wilderness by the Spirit, and one of the results of that is that he is hungry, he is thirsty, he is out in the desert by himself. That is a physical reality, but Satan, seeing that physical reality, is going to pile on with temptation. And so I'd say again, like one, uh, the times I have most clearly ever felt like I was being spiritually attacked, it always came on the heels of being physically exhausted. So for some reason, uh, all those years of being a youth pastor, like the day after youth camp, you know, I haven't slept in five days, I'm running off Mountain Dew, I have felt in those moments just um, um, attacks on my character, I have felt in those moments like that just literally Satan piles on at that time to try to discourage me from walking with the Lord. And I, I would say I have, I've seen that over and over again in my life, when there is something physical that is draining me, all of a sudden something spiritual begins to occur. I would say when I first began uh, moving into ministry and this church started to give me opportunities to preach the word of God, on the weeks I would have a sermon to prepare, I would struggle a whole lot more with my thoughts. Not everything is demonic, but I would say Satan is smart and strategic, and if you have something physical going on in your life that is draining you, I would say in a spiritual attack is soon going to come. And so it's something we want to be aware of in how uh, these schemes operate and take place so that we know in those moments when we are facing that temptation, we can begin to um, uh, turn to the Lord and also see the things that Jesus has done. So be aware of that scheme, the pylon. And I would just say, if, if something right now is going on in your life, maybe, maybe a physical ailment, maybe just a season where you are working so much that you are exhausted, maybe you have not been sleeping well, I would say be aware that you are susceptible to be led astray because your physical self is weak and the spiritual self is going to be attacked. That is a scheme of the devil. The next thing I think that's just very clear uh, from this story of Jesus is that uh, one of the schemes of Satan is to attack our identity in God. So this passage comes right after uh, Matthew chapter 3, and in Matthew chapter 3 is the baptism of Jesus, where he goes to John the Baptist to the river, and he wants to be baptized, and so John baptizes him, and then what happens? The heavens open up, the Spirit of God descends like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he has just had this moment of Jesus about to be stepping into his ministry. He has come on the scene. God has declared it. You are my beloved son. And one of the very first things Satan attacks is that identity. It says, if you are the son of God. And I think for us, that's another thing we should key on for ourselves as well, that um, if we have placed our faith in Jesus, we know we have received an identity from God, that we are a follower of Christ, we are a Christian, we are a believer, we are born again, however you want to phrase it. You know, we have received this identity, and we know that a behavior is supposed to follow that identity. And so I think when we uh, get enticed into temptation, when we get led astray, one of the first things we hear in our own minds is, would a Christian really do that? 
we get attacked at our core of our identity because Satan wants us to question our sonship and our daughtership with Christ. Are you really a child of God if you would want that? Would you really struggle with this desire if you were a Christian? And that's what he goes after, the identity of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 should be an encouragement to all of us. It says that no temptation has overtaken us except what is common to man. And so in those moments when you are feeling led away from the Lord, you should uh, be reminded um, that it's not just you. It's just not, it's not just your problem. You're not in some area where you are weaker or um, uh, more susceptible or the only one who struggles with this. There is literally not a person in this room who has struggled with something that is unique because that's what the Word of God tells us. And another thing it should tell us is that although I do think this story is about Jesus and we want to look at Jesus and not necessarily always put ourselves in that story, I think we can uh, look at some of the principles of what Jesus has gone through and how Satan tried to tempt and entice him. And we can see that uh, there is a strategy that he has employed from the beginning of time to try to get people to walk away from the Lord. And so uh, all of these temptations that Christ faced, I believe we have faced and will continue to face for the rest of our lives. It's the attack of Satan on our lives. And so let's remember that, that the same strategies are used for us as people. He wants us to question our identity in Christ. But then, uh, but then the attacks come. So that, I think those are just kind of the surface level. He's going to wait till you're tired and worn out. He's going to go after your identity. But then there's some specific temptation he ladles at Christ. And let's look at that. And so I, I would phrase it, um, these three temptations in this way. I would say he attacks God's provision God's goodness, and he also attacks God's glory. And so the first temptation, let's look at it again. He says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus is hungry. It's the first thing he goes after. But we do already know from the story that God put him in this position of being in the wilderness and being hungry, but hunger is a natural human inclination. You don't have food to eat. Your body's going to get hungry. That's how God made us. But what's happening here, and I think it's really important, is that um, this physical need that we all have, Jesus is connecting it to a spiritual need. So there's this physical desire, but he's connecting it to a spiritual need. And so in, within this arrangement, within this temptation, I would say that's happening right now, is that all of us are going to be having desires that we want to be fulfilled, and Satan's going to attack that and um, try to get you to fulfill those desires outside of the will of God. So all of us have desires. I mean, food's a very basic one that we can all recognize, but all of us are going to have a, a draw and a pull in our life towards certain things. We want to be fulfilled in certain ways. And so what Jesus is doing is that when you feel that physical pull towards something, that's connected to an even deeper spiritual need. And so when we have that pull towards hunger, one of the things it's supposed to remind us of is that we have a greater spiritual hunger to be satisfied by our Heavenly Father. It doesn't matter in which category you want to choose from food to sex to money to whatever it might be. If we have this desire, and not all of them are evil or bad desires, but Satan can use that to make us question God's provision that what he has provided for us is not enough. 
And so he is going to attack God's provision for you in your life and try to entice you to fulfill those desires in an ungodly means. He's going to make you want to question if what God has provided for you is actually enough or not. If God led you into the wilderness, does he have the power to sustain you? Are you going to be challenged to meet those needs under your own power? James 1.14 says um, that everybody is tempted by their own desires, and that is what leads them away towards sin and then ultimately towards death. The second attack, I would say, is against God's goodness. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And this is where Satan starts to get clever because he uh, brings in the word of God to this scenario. And so Jesus is out here in the wilderness by himself. He has been doing the will of the Father. The Spirit led him, and now he's in this place of exhaustion and hunger, and Satan's going to go after God's goodness. If God really cared about you, would he let you be in this situation? If God really cared about you, would he let you be hungry? If God really cared about you, he would do this thing for you. If God really cared about your loneliness, he would provide you with somebody to fulfill that. If God really cared about your circumstances, why don't you do this to see if he responds? It's a clever attack. I think we've probably all been there at different points. If God really cared, he wouldn't let this be happening. If God really cared, he would do this for me. If God really cared, cared he would fulfill this need in this way. So what does Jesus do? Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so it's interesting right here that uh, uh, Satan actually quotes Psalm 91, which is a psalm of trusting. It's about how no matter what, you can trust God. It is not a psalm of God, uh, be my little genie and do whatever I want. Because there's this instinct we have when we read some of the incredible blessings uh, that God bestows on people and that God promises to his people that we make it a mark of God's faithfulness on if that particular thing has shown up in our life or not. And so that's why you get whole churches and whole uh, theologies built on like, oh, if God's faithful, then what will result in your life is physical health and financial mean. Like, if God was actually doing what he said he was going to do, this is the way your life is going to look. And if you take an honest look at the scriptures, uh, we can't really attach that level of physical comfort to God's faithfulness because all throughout history, God has been leading his people into the wilderness so that we learn that it's not always this physical provision, but it is his goodness that overflows in our life so that we can recognize that regardless of the circumstance, we can praise the name of God. If God was really good, would he let Christians be persecuted all around the world? I think there are churches and people and places that face way more hardships than we do that know God's goodness at such a deeper and more fulfilling level because we are, are so caught up in the physical comfort that we want around us. And so recognize that the next time or if you are in the middle of the wilderness right now and you hear that voice saying, if God was really good, he would do this. That's not from the Lord. 
God wants you to know a satisfaction and fulfillment that goes so beyond um, our physical and temporal and temporary circumstances. Don't fall for the attack on God's goodness. And I like that I think it's kind of interesting, the first two attacks came, say, if you were the son of God. So he tried the identity thing twice, it didn't work, he gives that up, he kind of puts his cards on the table, and this is what he says in the final temptation. He says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God in him only you shall serve. You know, uh, within the New Testament, it's, it's pretty clear that God has allowed Satan a certain level of authority on this earth. At different points, he's called the king of this world um, or the prince of the air. He's given these certain titles that definitely uh, give us a picture that there's a certain level of authority that Satan is allowed underneath God. And so honestly, um, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think that this is a, a hollow promise. Because, you know, it does talk about, um, it, it, it paints this different picture between the, the things of this world and the things of God. So there are these, the things of the world that we buy into that in a, a temporary fashion might give us satisfaction, might give us pleasure, might give us power, whatever it might be. And I think Satan is legitimately offering these things to God. But, but one of the things I want to point out to us, because I think he's going to make similar offers to us as he tempts us and entices us away from God, that um, anything he could offer us is a shallow representation of a promise God has already made to you. So he's saying, hey, look at these kingdoms of the world. I'm going to offer them to you if you only worship me. And, and, and Jesus rebukes him. He says, get away from me. I don't want to have anything to do with that because uh, Jesus knows uh, the trajectory of his life. And, and what happens at the end of the book of Matthew after Jesus has undergone uh, incredible suffering, is crucified, is resurrected, in Matthew 28, Jesus comes and says, all authority, heaven, earth, all of it has been given to me by the Father, by suffering through obedience. And so Satan could not, could only offer him a cheap substitute for something God had already promised us. And so what does Satan try to offer us? There is no sexual experience that you could undergo that would be more satisfying than what God has promised to a husband and wife in an intimate marriage. There is no material possession that would make you happier than a heart that has stored up treasures in heaven and is satisfied in the provision of the Lord. There is nothing Satan can offer you that is more than a cheap imitation of what God has already promised to give you. And so he's attacking God's glory by trying to offer cheap imitations to the goodness God already has provided for us. And Jesus is not going to stand for it. He sends him away. Uh, Jesus does this at another time um, when, when Peter is confronting him. And this should be a lesson to us that um, Jesus knows his path is through hardship because as the Christian, we know that the path to life is through death. And so uh, Jesus knows what's going to take place. And so when Satan's like, hey, you can skip that whole cross thing and just have all the kingdoms of this world, Jesus sends him away. And that happens again. Uh, Jesus has told his disciples like, hey, the son of man has to be crucified. And Peter tries to um, correct and says, no, Jesus, you don't have to face death. And in that moment, Jesus sees it again, that same temptation to diminish the glory of God. And he says, get behind me, Satan. 
because Jesus has come to do the will of the Father because he knows what God wants for our life is way more glorious than we could ever imagine. Don't buy the lie that he can offer you something better than God has already promised you. I think another lesson we can take from this and from the rest of the Gospels is that trials are not going to just come once. Temptation is not just going to come once. Jesus faced this identity question his entire ministry. In fact, in the moment where he was probably most physically depleted, when he was hung on the cross for our sins, the people came and jeered again, if you are the Son of God, you would come down from there. But God leads us through trials to prepare us for those other moments. And so all of the parts in the Bible when it talks about trials, not temptation, but trials. So James 1 says, consider it joy when you go through trials because uh, that trial is going to produce endurance. And then Romans 5 talks about that, this progression of what uh, our suffering, what our trials produce, and ultimately it is hope. And so if you're going through a trial right now, don't think this is the end of the road. God is doing a deeper work in your life to bring you to himself. And so just know that an aspect of what you are facing, an aspect of what you are struggling with right now, it's probably going to come back up again, but that's why we're going through this. God is equipping and preparing us for that time. But also remember, if, if Satan has tempted you in an area and it has been successful, he's not going to give that up. So we have to continue to submit those things to the Lord because Jesus is facing and being victorious in these trials, but I know I have failed in all three of these trials. And so just know, like, he's not going to give that up if it's been successful in your life because I know sometimes it's so easy to get beat down and be like, I wish I didn't struggle with this anymore. I feel like I've been fighting this my entire life and I'm so tired of fighting it. I'll just say, don't give up. Don't give up. And I think that's a big way that spiritual warfare works in our life and how Satan wants to lead us astray. But I, I, I want to just end just, just looking at Jesus. So not putting us into the story, um, not applying it to our lives, just, just looking at what Jesus um, is accomplishing right here. Hopefully, just reading this story um, made some connections with you to some other parts of the scriptures. Um, but if not, I want to draw some of those out. So last week, we talked about the Exodus. We talked about the people of Israel being led into the wilderness by God for 40 years. That should invoke something for us when we read about Jesus, Jesus being led into the wilderness for 40 days. There's supposed to be a connection being made there for us across the scriptures because um, in the Exodus, it's the people of Israel uh, that God has led out there. And so now we have the Son of God out in the wilderness also facing trials. And then Jesus, all of these times he quotes scripture um, to combat Satan and these um, temptations he's facing, all of it comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And so if you look back at all these different points Jesus is quoting, and so that first temptation he faces, uh, talking about um, uh, God's provision, it's from Deuteronomy chapter 8, where it says that the people of Israel were hungry in the desert, and so God provided them miraculously with manna so that they would learn that you do not live on bread alone, but at every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then uh, the next trial he faced, uh, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, where he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test like you did before. 
And so it's referencing Exodus 17, where the people of God are thirsty, and they're grumbling and saying, did God just bring us out here to die? And then um, Moses, in his anger, takes his staff and hits the rock, and water appears, because they're like, hey, if God actually cared about us, he would provide us with things right now. So they question God's goodness and put God to the test. And so that's what um, uh, Jesus is quoting as saying, don't put God to the test like you did before. And then finally, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 13, it says, serve the Lord your God and fear him only. And that is referencing when um, right after they exit Egypt and uh, Moses is up receiving the Ten Commandments, they're down in the valley making for themselves idols and worshiping other things because they felt like God was far and distant. So we should um, connect all these things that Jesus is accomplishing something here. That Israel had been called out to be God's chosen people, that they were supposed to be his people, and um, he would be their God, and God made this covenant, but people, uh, humans, failed that covenant. And so they faced all three of these tests in their 40 years in the wilderness, and they failed all of those tests. But so now Jesus has come, he is facing 40 days in the wilderness, he is facing all those tests, and where people had failed in the past, Jesus is succeeding he is the true son of Abraham that was called out by God who walked in integrity and was perfect. Jesus is the true Israel. And so also, if we recognize that story, it should throw us back to an even older story. It should go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In the garden, God made man in his image, wanting to have communion and closeness with him. And uh, Adam and Eve had this relationship with God, but then the tempter came. And he came and said, hey, why can't you eat of that tree? And they said, well, God said we could eat of all the other trees. He's provided all these other things for us. And the tempter says, you know, well, that one looks pretty good. It's, it says it's appealing to the eye. It's like, well, there's some provision over there that you're missing out on. And then he, he tempts again. He says, well, you know, did God really say you wouldn't eat of it? Maybe he's just trying to keep something from you. So he's attacking. If, if God was good, he would let you have it. And then he goes after God's glory, like, no, you're not going to die even though God was trying to take care of them, to keep them in this closeness, in this intimacy, this innocence. God was trying to protect them. It was part of God's goodness requiring them not to eat of that. And then he goes after God's glory. He's like, hey, if you'll eat of it, you'll be like God. You'll know right from wrong, good from evil. He goes after God's glory and tries to offer them a cheap imitation of what God had already promised. And so where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus withstands the temptation and succeeds on humanity's behalf. Romans 5 talks about this. I'd love for you to turn there. Romans 5, starting in verse 12, says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Where humanity, where mankind has failed, Jesus has came and succeeded so that we can receive the righteousness of God. He not only took our sins on the cross, but his life was a testimony for all of us that Jesus has come to redeem mankind so that we can have intimacy and closeness in our relationship with God. And so what that should do for us, because of what Jesus has done, it should give us confidence in the battles that we have faced and that we are going to face. Because like I said, like I would say all three of those temptations, I have failed on many, many occasions. But where I have failed, Jesus has succeeded. And so my hope and confidence is not in myself, but in the cross of Christ. And so let me encourage you, believer, as you face trials and face temptation, that yes, the enemy might have some temporary day-to-day -day success in all the little struggles of life, but ultimately, we are facing a defeated foe because Jesus came and he said no. And Jesus came and he rebuked the tempter and he turned away from temptation and he lived a sinless life so that we could have a relationship with him that is not based on our ability to uphold our end, but it's based on his ability that he upheld the covenant for us. And so I, I couldn't help but be reminded of Romans 8 where it, tell, it reminds us what can separate us from the love of God. And it says, should trials? It says No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the greater Israel. Jesus is the greater Adam. He has withstood the temptation. He has walked in integrity. He has taken our sin upon himself so that there is not a thing in this universe that has the ability to take you out of the hands of your Savior. And so when you face that trial and you fail, which you will at times, it does nothing to separate you from the love of God. It should just be a reminder to us that we can continue to press in because Jesus faced the trial on our behalf. And so if you would indulge me, I'd love to just look at one more scripture as we end our time in Hebrews chapter 4. As a matter of fact, if you're able, would you Stand with me as I read this, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to worship our Savior. Hebrews 4, 14 says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. 
Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Thank you.